بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, as promised, inshallah, we will begin the commentary of Surah Al-Munafiqun today. Surah Al-Munafiqun occurs towards the end of the Qur'an. It's one of the shorter surahs. It's one of the later surahs to be revealed. in Al-Madinatul Munawwarah and therefore it's an entirely Madani Surah and in terms of its placement in the Qur'an it's the 63rd Surah of the Qur'an <coughs> but the revelation what came much later in the latter part or the middle part of the Prophet life in Al-Madinatul Munawwarah. Surah Al-Munafiqun is a very famous surah. One of the main reasons for its fame is that the Prophet would regularly recite Surah Al-Munafiqun in the second rak'ah of Jumu'ah Salah. So we learn from various hadith, such as those in the Sahih of Imam Muslim, Rahmatullahi alayhi, the Sunan of Imam Abu Dawood, and others including the Sunan of Tirmidhi, that the Prophet wasallam would recite Surah Al-Jumu'ah in the first rak'ah of the Friday prayer, and then Surah Al-Munafiqun in the second rak'ah of the Jumu'ah Salah. And both these surahs are consecutive, so Surah Al-Jumu'ah immediately precedes Surah Al-Munafiqun. So the Prophet ﷺ would read one in the first rak'ah, followed by Surah Al-Munafiqun in the second rak'ah. So, and the same authors also relate that the Prophet ﷺ would recite Surah Al-A'la in the first rak'ah of Jumu'ah Salah and Surah Al-Ghashiyah in the second rak'ah of Jumu'ah Salah. And the, the meaning of both sets of hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ would alternate It does not necessarily mean that these were the only four surahs that he would recite in Jumu'ah Salah, but predominantly these are the surahs because these are categorically and clearly mentioned 
by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum in the hadith. And not only that, but the Sahaba radiallahu anhum actually made it their practice. So Imam Muslim rahmatullah relates in his Sahih that once the governor of Medina left Al Madinatul Munawwara, one of the Umayyad governors, this was long after the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in his absence, since in the early days, the Amir of the Believers was also the Amir and the Imam of Salah. So the Imam of the Believers, the political Imam, was also the religious Imam in terms of leading prayer, especially Jumu'ah and Eid. So the governors in the capital, it would be the Khalifa who would lead, and in the provinces and in the other cities, the appointed governors who were the political imams of their region, they would also be the imam of salah. So some of them, even though they weren't sahaba radiallahu anhum, they would actually lead salah and the sahaba radiallahu anhum would pray salah behind them. So the Umayyad governor of al-Madinatul Munawwara departed for a short while somewhere and in his absence, he appointed <coughs> Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an to lead the prayers. So Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an, Imam Muslim rahmatullahi relates that Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an performed Jumu'ah salah and in the first rak'ah he recited Surah Al-Jumu'ah and in the second rak'ah he recited Surah Al-Munafiqun. So someone approached him who had come from Kufa. Not recently, i.e. He, he spent much time in Kufa when Ali was the Khalifa there and Kufa was actually the capital of Islam. Because after Uthman ibn Affan had been martyred and when Ali eventually assumed the reigns of Khilafah, he transferred the capital from the city of the Prophet وسلم, to Kufa. So Kufa was a major political, economic, and most importantly, a major scholarly and religious center. Many of the Sahaba عنهم, were based in Kufa. So this individual had spent time there in Kufa during the days of Ali when he was a Khalifa. So he approached Abu Hurairah and he said to him that indeed you prayed Jumu'ah, Surah Al-Jumu'ah in the first rak'ah and Surah Al-Munafiqun in the second rak'ah. And this is what Ali used to do in Kufa. So Abu Hurairah explained that this was a, this was because we heard, I heard, the Prophet ﷺ recite these two surahs in Salatul Jumu'ah. So this actually was the sunnah of the Sahaba anhum too. And as Ali would regularly read Suratul Jumu'ah in the first and Suratul Munafiqun in the second rak'ah. We actually learn from one narration that the Sahaba anhum explained part of the reason for the Prophet ﷺ reciting these two surahs. And the narration states 
that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would recite Surah Al-Jum'ah in the first rak'ah in order to encourage and advise the believers towards the good deeds and the good message contained in Surah Al-Jum'ah. And then in the second rak'ah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would recite Surah Al-Munafiqoon in order to confound and rebuke and berate the hypocrites present in the congregation. So it was a direct rebuke. So the first rak'ah was meant for the believers. And then the second rak'ah was meant for the munafiqun, the hypocrites, who would be present. And this tells us a lot about the hypocrites during the time of the Prophet wasallam, That the hypocrites were very punctual in their salah, in their congregation, in their attendance, in their presence. And in many ways, they were extremely careful. This is why Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman, radiyallahu an, who was the keeper of the secrets of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And out of all of the sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, It was only Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman that the Prophet confided in. And told him, not confided in in general, but confided in with the names of the hypocrites. And again, not all of them. Because this was such a large group. And an interesting question here is, did the Prophet ﷺ know the identity of all of the hypocrites? And the Qur'an clarifies that. وَمِمَّنْ حَوْلَكُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مُنَافِقُونَ وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَرَضُوا عَلَى النِّفَاقِ لَا تَعْلَمُهُمْ نَحْنُ نَعْلَمُهُمْ That of around you, from amongst the Bedouin, around you, i.e. around the city of Medina, there are munafiqun, the hypocrites. Women ahlil Medina, and also from the people of Medina, the city, maradu al-nifaq, they have persisted in their hypocrisy. La ta'lamuhum, and then here the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, is being individually addressed because the address is singular, not collective. La ta'lamuhum, you, O Messenger of Allah, do not know them, but we know them. So, did the Prophet know the identities of all of the hypocrites? Well, the Quran clearly states that you know them, you do not know them, but we know them. And this is why towards the, even towards the end of his life, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam did identify a number of hypocrites. In one narration it's mentioned that in the Jumu'ah Salah, this was after Ghazbat Tabuk, or round about that time, uh, after the campaign of Tabuk. Yeah, it was after Ghazbat Tabuk, after the campaign of Tabuk in the ninth year of Hijrah, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam once in Jumu'ah, he actually said to individuals, you rise and leave for you are a munafiq. This isn't in one of the more famous narrations of hadith, but it's mentioned in one narration. 
You rise, for you are a hypocrite. You rise, for you are a hypocrite. But even on that occasion, the narrations mention that he only named 36 individuals. He only named 36. And surely the group of hypocrites was much, much larger than this. Furthermore, when he confided in Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman, he only gave him a list, according to some narrations, of approximately 15 individuals who were munafiqun, not to all of them. So it seems as though the Prophet didn't disclose to him all the names of the hypocrites that he himself knew, but only some of them. But Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman was the only one amongst all the Sahaba who had the names of some of the munafiqun and hypocrites. So he was the reference amongst the Sahaba and the authority on nifaq. To the extent that Umar ibn al-Khattab used to say to him that tell me, O Hudayfah, is my name in the list of the hypocrites? So Hudayfah would say no, but then he would also add that I will not purify or declare anyone pure of hypocrisy after you. So he would say that you are not in the list, but after you and beyond you, I will not declare anyone pure of hypocrisy. So Hudayfah was the authority on nifaq. And again, Umar radiallahu because Hudayfah wouldn't disclose the names of some of the hypocrites to anyone, what the Sahaba, including Hudayfah, including Umar ibn al-Khattab, would do is that, subhanAllah, if there was a janazah, they would observe the actions of Abu Hurair, of Hudayfah ibn al-Yaman, especially Umar. So Umar used to wait to see if Hudayfah performed Salatul Janazah over the individual. If Hudayfah wasn't present, Umar wouldn't pray Salah over him. He would take Hudayfah as an authority. So the re- uh, I digress, but the reason I mentioned Hudayfah is that this authority on hypocrisy and nifaq amongst the Sahaba used to address the people of his day and age and say to them, you are worse than the hypocrites of the time of Rasulullah for they would conceal their hypocrisy whereas you, you openly declare it. So even during the time of the Prophet the munafiqun would be present in salah in the congregations. And this is why according to one of the narrations, the Prophet would recite Surah Al-Jum'ah in the first rak'ah for the sake of the believers, so that they could be exhorted and encouraged to good deeds and the beautiful message contained therein. But the second rak'ah was meant for the hypocrites actually present in the masjid, in salah, in the congregation. And this was a regular occurrence. This is one of the main reasons why Surah Al-Munafiqun is so famous. It's the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, the sunnah of the Sahaba anhum, and the sunnah of the ulama and the imams of Islam and the qurra to actually regularly recite these two surahs in Salatul Jum'ah. 
and time permitting, many ulama still hold steadfast to this sunnah. So this is one of the uh, what the main reason for the fame of this surah. So inshallah today we'll begin the commentary of Surah Al-Munafiqun just to recap it's the 63rd surah of the Holy Quran in order follows immediately after Surah Al-Jumu'ah and in terms of revelation it it came towards the middle of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's life in Al-Madinah Al-Munawwarah. The theme of the surah is hypocrisy. And in fact, it's, although other surahs are normally known by many different names, Surah Al-Munafiqun is known just as Surah Al-Munafiqun. And this is what the Sahaba called it to. This is what's written and documented in all of the uh, copies of the Holy Quran from the very beginning. So, and undoubtedly the name of the surah al-munafiqun is taken from the very first few words إِذَا جَاءَكَ الْمُنَافِقُونَ قَالُوا نَشْهَدُ إِنَّكَ لَرَسُولُ اللَّهِ When the hypocrites come to you they say and we will uh, read the surah shortly but the name of the surah has been taken from the very beginning words of the surah now the main theme of the surah is nifaq and hypocrisy, and al-munafiqun, the hypocrites. And even though the... Well, as a summary, the beginning verses deal with the hypocrites as a group. And then the middle part of the surah deals with the hypocrites in general. And although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the collective term, the topic of the middle part of the surah is mainly related to one individual, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, the leader of the hypocrites. He, he wasn't the official leader because they weren't an official group. So he wasn't the official leader, but he was undoubtedly the most powerful, the most influential, uh, and the most strategic individual amongst the munafiqun. And indeed, he was regarded as a leader even before the arrival of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was the uncrowned king of al-Madinat al-Munawwarah. So the middle part of the surah deals with him predominantly, although he is not referred to by name, nor is he referred to in the individual pronoun. Rather, the pronoun is collective. In fact, the Holy Qur'an is unique in that sense. It's very different to other books. The entire Qur'an hardly names individuals from the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa It's remarkable. Names are mentioned from the prophets of before. But from the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa only three people are named. The Prophet ﷺ, and even he is named only five times in the Qur'an. Four times Muhammad, once Ahmed. Other Prophets are named more than him in the Qur'an. 
So apart from himself, from his contemporaries, only two people are mentioned by name. One Muslim, one non-Muslim, and both members of his family. One Abu Lahab, his uncle. Abi Lahab. And the second, his one-time adopted son, Zayd ibn Haritha. Apart from Zayd ibn Haritha, the only one from the believers named in the Qur'an. Apart from Abu Lahab, the only one of the non-Muslims named in the Qur'an and both family members of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from the time of Rasulullah no other individual is mentioned by name. So here as well, even though Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was a very prominent and powerful and central figure in the opposition to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he is not referred to by name. And nor even by the individual pronoun, but rather the collective pronoun referring to the hypocrites in general, but obviously him in particular. That's the middle part of the surah. This first part of the surah deals with the munafiqun collectively, the middle part uh, individually or predominantly with Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. And then the final part of the surah uh, is not about the hypocrites. Rather, it's an exhortation and a reminder and an advice to the believers not to be distracted from the remembrance of Allah by their wealth and their children and an exhortation to them to spend in the way of Allah before death comes upon them. Now, that may seem as though it's got nothing to do with hypocrisy and the hypocrites, but there is a subtle connection. The final part of the surah is not disjointed. In fact, there is a very subtle and delicate connection. And the connection is that the love of the world, being distracted by wealth and children and by the other distractions of the dunya, and being diverted by such things from the remembrance of Allah and from the akhirah, and being stingy and miserly, and holding on and clinging on to one's wealth and not sharing and spending, these are not the characteristics of pure believers, but rather these are reflective of a weakness and a lack of faith to the extent that they can be considered the traits of hypocrisy, albeit lesser hypocrisy. So this, the, the, these are the themes, uh, and the, this is the theme and the topics of the surah. Now, al-munafiqun, the hypocrites, and hypocrisy, the noun and the adverb, is nifaq, hypocrisy. Where does the word come from? Very interesting point. We are all familiar with the word nifaq and munafiq. In fact, it's a term of insult. So people label one another munafiq. Where does the word actually come from? Obviously, the word was not used before the time of the Sahaba. There were many words that were used, but munafiq is one word which wasn't used. But yet, it's mentioned so many times throughout the Qur'an, it's part of the common vocabulary of the Qur'an, of the Muslims, of Islam, of the Sahaba, of the Hadith. 
So where did the word come from? What's its origin? How was it derived? Interestingly, you may know that in Arabic, nafaq means tunnel. It's a, it's a modern word as well, so uh, a tunnel is referred to as nafaq. And it's actually mentioned in the Qur'an too. فَإِنِ اسْتَطَعْتَ أَن تَبْتَغِيَ نَفَقًا فِي الْأَرْضِ Allah tells the Prophet وسلم, that if you can find a tunnel, a burrow in the earth. So nafaq means a tunnel. Furthermore, there are certain animals, rodents, moles, and lizards, in all parts of the world, but especially in Arabia, so speaking in the Arabian context, there were certain rodents and lizards, and still are, that burrow holes, dig holes and burrows beneath the ground. And some of these animals, in order to thwart their, uh, their hunter and to protect themselves, and as part of their strategy and mechanism and defense mechanism and deception, what they do is that they dig a hole and they enter the ground through that hole, then they create tunnels, even more than one. And the entrance of the hole is exposed, it's open. And what the animal does is that it creates other holes right beneath the surface, so leading up to the surface. So the surface of the earth is still intact with with a minimum layer of soil. So it's not visible to the onlooker. The onlooker can only see the entrance holes. The Arabs had a name for these entrance holes, qasi'a. Now what the lizard, the mole, the rodent, what these animals do, is that if they are ever in danger, and they are being pursued, and they are under threat, they enter their holes. The hunter, human or animal, would remain at the qasi'a, meaning the entrance hole. And what these animals would do is they enter their labyrinth of burrows and tunnels and go to any one of the one of the prepared holes that would end just beneath the surface. And then they would break through and escape from somewhere else. This second hole, the exit hole, that was a secret hole, would be known as nafiqa. And the Arabs took the term munafiq from this word nafiqa. So it's a form of deception where the animal enters a hole and a burrow from an open area, an exposed hole, and then creates a labyrinth and a web of deception of tunnels and burrows beneath and then escapes from an exit hole which others can't see, which is secret and which is dug up till just beneath the surface. So the second exit hole is known as a nafiqa, and this is how the term came into common use. 
and hence we have nifaq, hypocrisy, and munafiq, the hypocrite. So a good word for a munafiq is a mole. A munafiq is a mole. And when it comes to Islam, it's those who openly enter into Islam. It's a beautiful connection. Since the animal enters through the qasi'ah, meaning an open hole, which is exposed and everyone can see it. But they emerge from a secret hole. So similarly, those, the munafiqun, enter into Islam, embrace Islam openly. But then soon enough, they exit from Islam through one of the many secret tunnels and burrows and holes, undetected. So they aren't in the tunnel of Islam. They aren't in the burrow of faith. They entered into it, but they've disappeared. And people assume they're still there. So this is where the term nifaq, hypocrisy, and munafiq, singular, and munafiqun, plural, derives from. Now, during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, who were the hypocrites? What was considered nifaq? Well, there was no real concept of hypocrisy per se. There was a small element, but not the kind of nifaq we, came, we come to know in Al-Madinatul Munawwara. But in Makkah al-Mukarramah, the Muslims were a very small, impoverished, weakened group. Small in number. They lacked numbers, they lacked strength, they lacked political influence, sway. In fact, many of them couldn't protect themselves. And the more powerful ones and the wealthier ones couldn't protect the weaker ones. As a result... Unfortunately, many of the uh, Sahaba عنهم, in the earliest days of Islam were persecuted, were tortured, and even martyred. And they had to escape from Makkah al-Mukarramah with their lives and with their faith. Some of them escaped to Abyssinia, and others escaped later, the second wave of emigration. There were two waves of hijrah to Abyssinia from Makkah al-Mukarramah. The first wave, followed by a second wave. And then eventually, the Prophet ﷺ advised them to emigrate and to do hijrah to Madinatul Munawwara. So, given their weak, oppressed position, lacking wealth, lacking influence, lacking power, strength, there was no incentive for anyone to pretend to be a Muslim. In fact, to some degree, it was almost suicidal. And this points to the sincerity and the integrity of the belief of the Sahaba anhum. There is an argument posited by some that Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he managed to win and attract followers because he delivered a socialist message in Makkah al-Mukarramah. He delivered a message of deliverance, of freedom, of equality, of dignity to the oppressed, to the slaves, to the extremely poor. 
in this very elitist society. But this flies in the face of all evidence that we have about life in Makkah al-Mukarramah. The truth is, for people to embrace Islam then was to invite opposition, persecution, imprisonment, torture, and even murder at the hands of the Meccans. So there was no incentive for anyone to pretend to be a Muslim. They didn't have wealth, they didn't have political influence, they had no power, no strength, no control, no authority. So the lines were clearly set. The Muslims were Muslims, the non-Muslims were non-Muslims. This was a small camp of believers and followers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the midst of a whole city that was hostile to them. Eventually, when the Prophet ﷺ did hijrah to Medina al-Munawwara, what happened in Medina was that the demographics of the city were such that you had two major Arab tribes. There were small other tribes as well, or clans from amongst other tribes, but predominantly the occupants and the inhabitants of the oasis of Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, which wasn't a walled city as we imagine it. Rather, Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara was a collection of settlements spread out across the whole oasis. And this is why, in fact, there were quite a few miles between these different settlements. So even today, Quba, which is in the south of the city, is part of Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, undoubtedly. But during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, he first descended and arrived in Quba after the Hijrah, which was in the south of the city. He remained there for some time, and then he proceeded, not to the center of the city, because there was no center, but he proceeded to the settlement of the Banu Najjar, who were his relatives. So he then traveled a few miles not many, but a few miles from uh, Uba to another settlement. And eventually that's where he set up the masjid. He resided there at the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and set up the masjid there. And eventually that became the center of the city. But even during the time of the Prophet wasallam, even though it, cont- it, was still, it was called Al-Madin, and previously it was known as Yathrib, Prophet ﷺ changed the name to Al-Madinah. And even though it was known as the city, it wasn't a conventional city. It was actually quite unlike Makkah al-Mukarramah. Makkah was, it wasn't a walled city, but it was a very closely built city. Al-Madinah al-Munawwara was just a collection of settlements spread out. So there were a number of tribes, but the two main tribes were the Aus and Khazraj who were actually re- related because they were the descendants of one tribe known as the Banu Qayla. So, Aus and Khazraj were the two largest, most powerful Arab tribes in Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara. There were a few scattered other clans, remnants of other tribes. And then there were three large Jewish tribes, the Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Quraidah, and Banu Nadir. These were the five main tribes of Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara. Of course, we can't come to exact figures, but a rough estimate 
of the total population of Al-Madinatul Munawwara at that time, and this is uh, an educated guess, is about 17,000 inhabitants across the whole settlement. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Al-Madinatul Munawwara and he did Hijrah, his position from the very first day, in fact before he left, was very different to that in Makkah al-Mukarramah. Because in the Bay'atul Aqabah, in the pledge, during the Hajj, prior to the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ had taken the pledge and the oath and the loyalty of the leaders of the Arab tribes of Al-Madinatul Munawwara. And thus, when he arrived, they had sworn to protect him, to receive him, to accommodate him, to support him. They, in fact, he went to Al-Madinatul Munawwara at their invitation. So when he arrived, even before his arrival, the situation was completely different. Many people had already embraced Islam. And upon his arrival, even more people embraced. And within a very brief time, a very short time, most of the Arab tribes of Aus and Khazraj had already embraced Islam. They had. What this meant is that there were many in both the Aus and the Khazraj Arab tribes of Al-Madinatul Munawwara who for various reasons did not want to embrace. Either they weren't convinced Either they were indifferent, they couldn't care, or they were bitterly opposed to the Prophet ﷺ beforehand for personal, political, or other reasons, such as Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He felt that the Prophet ﷺ had robbed him of his crown because prior to the coming of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was actually being prepared and groomed. He wasn't being groomed. He was, uh, his throne and his crown, his wreath were being prepared. Not a literal throne, but metaphorically speaking. But literally, they were weaving a wreath for him. And this is why once the Prophet ﷺ said to one of the Ansari Sahaba anhum, Usaid ibn Hudayr and he said, have you not seen what your companion meaning? Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Because he was one of the Khazraj. He said, have you not seen and heard what he has said and done? So Usaid ibn Hudayr said to him, Ya Rasulullah, overlook him and be gentle with him. For there is a reason for his behavior. Because prior to your arrival, we were actually weaving and preparing a wreath for him to crown him as a king of Medina. And when you arrived, he feels that you have robbed him of his kingship, of his throne. So be gentle with him, Ya Rasulullah. Overlook what he says and does. He is bitter. So... Usaid ibn Hudayr wasn't supporting him, no, he was a very sincere Sahabi, one of Karamat. He's the same Sahabi who was reciting the Quran with his son sleeping close by. And 
He saw lights and his horse was prancing, as Imam Bukhari and others all relate. And then the next morning he came to relate the incident to Rasulullah The Prophet told him that the lights that you saw rising up and then disappearing into the sky, these were the angels that had descended from the heavens to listen to your recitation of the Qur'an. And had you continued to recite till morning, then you would have greeted the angels in the streets of Medina. So, Usaid ibn Hudayr wasn't supporting Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul. Rather, he was simply consoling and comforting Rasulullah lightening the insult and hoping to enable the Prophet to feel that he is bitter for his own reasons and there is nothing personal towards the Prophet Even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala advised the Prophet not to take it personally. Allah told him, we know that what they say grieves you. But we know what they say grieves you. But they do not reject you. They do not call you a liar. Rather, these wrongdoers, they are in denial of the verses and the signs of Allah. So Sayyid ibn Hudayr was merely comforting Rasulullah So there were those who didn't believe, either because they weren't convinced, either because they were indifferent, or because... They harbored resentment and enmity towards Rasulullah for personal or political reasons. And a prime example is Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. So these people, though they didn't want to believe, they could not do what the Muggans had done, which is declare their opposition and enmity and their refusal to believe. In fact, the Muqqans mocked the Prophet Here, Rasulullah position was all assailing and prevalent. And not only that, their own family ties prevented them from doing so. So it wasn't just in consideration of the influence and the power of the Muslims. Rather, when they looked around themselves, they saw that their own family members, their own clan, their own tribe, had embraced. So to refuse to embrace in such circumstances would have invited the opposition and the condemnation of their own family members. and It would have made things awkward for them. So many of these individuals decided to embrace Islam, follow the remainder of the populace of Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, and become followers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So they embraced Islam openly. Some of them just kept quiet, but others, they trumpeted their Islam, even though they were liars and disbelievers. There were others who had doubts. So uh, I'll mention shortly how the grades of hypocrisy played out even during the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Some of them kept quiet, some of them were quite belligerent and provocative in what they said and did, and others 
plotted and schemed and left no stone unturned, spared no effort in trying to harm Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, the ummah at large, and also the cause of Islam. This is why the Qur'an devotes so many verses to the munafiqul. They are mentioned throughout the Qur'an. In fact, at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, the very beginning of the Holy Qur'an, not in terms of revelation, but in terms of placement, immediately after Surah Al-Fatiha, Allah begins the longest surah of the Qur'an, Surah Al-Baqarah, with a brief, a very brief discussion of the articles of faith. And then Allah mentions the believers in just a few verses. And then Allah mentions the non-believers in just a few verses. So the whole topic of the articles of faith, the believers and the unbelievers, is contained within a few short verses at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions... The surah launches into a lengthy, graphic, descriptive, and detailed discussion of the munafiqun, the hypocrites. It's a very lengthy section. So Allah devotes one or two verses to the believers, one or two verses to the unbelievers, and then a, a, a whole set of long verses to the munafiqun, right at the beginning of the Qur'an. In order to... Why? Because the unbelievers were honest and noble in their disbelief. The believers were honest and noble in their belief. But the munafiqun were the most dangerous of all groups. So Allah Azza wa devotes many verses of the Holy Qur'an to the topic of the munafiqun. And here we have a complete surah, albeit short. Now, during the time of the Prophet wasallam, as the Qur'an itself, the Qur'an doesn't speak about all of the munafiqun as one. Rather, different verses refer to different kind of munafiqun. So, this is to do with the grades. So, at the highest grade, we had... And before I continue, I'd like to mention that the, this is very relevant to us. We should not believe. We should not believe that, we should not think, even for a moment, that these topics are disconnected to us. They are unrelated to us. That the munafiqun were a group that existed during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, condemned by Allah and his Rasul ﷺ, and they have disappeared. They don't concern us anymore. No. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam warned us about hypocrisy. In a hadith, he mentions that one of the signs of the reckoning, one of the signs of the qiyamah, is the appearance of nifaq. Of course, nifaq was always there, but i.e. the flourishing of nifaq, the flourishing of hypocrisy. In one hadith related by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his Musnad, from Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, none other, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Inna akhwafa ma akhafu ala ummati 
كل منافق عليم اللسان indeed the greatest fear that i harbor for my ummah is every eloquent munafiq every eloquent hypocrite this is my greatest fear and the sahaba radiyallahu anhum feared hypocrisy imam muslim rahmatullah in all its forms imam muslim rahmatullah alayhi relates that once hanzalah radiyallahu anhu was at home he came out he was met by abu bakr as-siddiq radiyallahu anhu abu bakr radiyallahu anhu said to him how are you where are you going he said i am going to rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and nafaq hanzalah Hanzala has become a munafiq, a hypocrite. Hanzala is guilty of hypocrisy. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu said, what are you saying? So he explained to him, he said, when we are with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he advises us, admonishes us, reminds us about Jannah, Jahannam. And we are as though these things are before us. Then when we return to our families and homes, we become engrossed in our children, in our families. It's a completely different state. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said, indeed, in that case, let us both go to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They went. The Prophet ﷺ received them. Hanzalah explained to him what he had just said to Abu Bakr. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, O oh, Hanzalah, know that if you were to remain in the same state permanently and continuously as you are with me in my presence, then the angels would greet you. But, O oh, Hanzala, sa'atun wa sa'a, wa sa'atun sa'a, meaning, O oh, Hanzala, this is from moment to moment. Meaning, this experience that you have of being so believing, so con- convinced, so in fear, so in awe, in my presence, because of what I say to you and how you receive it, this cannot continue. These are moments, these are glimpses of truth, of realization, of reality. So these come and go. These are experiences from moment to moment. And if you were to remain in that blissful, fearful, or inspired state of realization and clarity continuously, then even the angels would embrace you. But that's not possible. Why I relate the hadith is that subhanallah Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, hanzalah radiallahu anhu, <coughs> feared nifaq and hypocrisy, not in the most extreme sense, i.e. of disloyalty and enmity and opposition to Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They feared even the least 
and the smallest and the slightest effects of hypocrisy, where their inner did not meet with their exterior. For them, true faith was how they felt, how they were, how they perceived things, how they thought, and how they believed in the presence of Rasulullah Their desire was to remain in that state continuously. And if they ever detected any departure from that, they feared hypocrisy. This is why I said the end of Surah Al-Munafiqoon is not disconnected. After speaking about the hypocrites, Allah says, Ya amanu la amwalukum wa la O believers, do not let your wealth and your chil- do not let your wealth and your children distract you from the remembrance of Allah. This is exactly what Hamdullah and Abu Bakr feared. That when they went back to their homes, their families, their children and their wealth distracted them from the remembrance of Allah and from the Akhirah. So the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum feared hypocrisy for themselves. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa feared nifaq and hypocrisy for us. So why shouldn't we be sensitive to it? So when we discuss the grades of nifaq, we shouldn't think for a moment we should never be complacent and imagine that none of this concerns us. No. Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa have warned us about all the grades of hypocrisy down to the lowest. So during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, as Allah mentions in the Qur'an, there were various groups. At the top end, the most extreme of the hypocrites were those who did not believe for a moment. They were never believers. They embraced Islam openly. But secretly, from within, at heart, they were not only disbelievers, they were sworn, avowed, bitter implacable enemies of Allah and his Rasul For them, embracing Islam was a mechanism, a means to be moles from within, to burrow from within, to undermine from within, to harm from within, harm the cause of Islam, harm the Muslims, in fact even harm Rasulullah They spared no effort in colluding with the enemy, in conspiring with the enemy, in damaging the Muslims, even if it led to murder, massacre. So these were the extreme munafiqun. And it's remarkable, even though the prime example is Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who left no effort whatsoever. And yet, they would announce Islam so passionately and repeatedly and regularly. So these were the extreme munafiqun. Then there were others. The others, which the Qur'an also addresses, there's a very beautiful description of the first group. Allahu Akbar. Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu la tattakhidhu bitanatan min dunikum la ya'lunakum khabala. Waddu ma'anittum. قَدْ بَدَتِ الْبَغْضَاءُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ وَمَا تُخْفِي صُدُورُهُمْ أَكْبَرُ قَدْ بَيَّنَّا لَكُمُ الْآيَاتِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ هَا أَنْتُمْ أُولَاءِ تُحِبُّونَهُمْ وَلَا يُحِبُّونَكُمْ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْكِتَابِ كُلِّهِ وَإِذَا لَقُوكُمْ قَالُوا آمَنَّا وَإِذَا خَلَوْا 
عدوا عليكم الأنامل من الغيظ قل موتوا بغيظكم إن الله عليم بذات الصدور Allah says O believers do not take as confidence those who are not from amongst you These they will spare no effort in harming you Whatever you suffer, they love. They love that you suffer. Rank hatred has poured forth from their mouths. And what their hearts conceal is even greater. Indeed, we have made clear the signs to you, the verses to you. If only you understand. These that you take as your confidence and that you believe to be of your own, these, you love them, but they love you not. Even though you believe in the whole book, they don't believe at all. Even though that's not the part of the verse, but that's the meaning. These you, these, you love them, they love you not, even though you believe in the whole book. And when they meet you, they say, Amanna, we have believed, i.e., we are believers just like you, we are Muslim just like you, we are one of you, you are of us, we are of you. Yet, Yet when they seclude, when they retreat into seclusion, Allah mentions it so beautifully, they bite their fingers in seething anger against you. Before you, they are all smiles, and they say, we are with you, you are with us, we are of you, you are of us. We are believers just like you. But the moment they retreat in seclusion, they bite their fingers in anger, in seething rage at you. Say to them, die in your rage. Verily, Allah is well aware of what the hearts contain, what the bosoms contain. If any good fortune meets you, this hurts them. And if any calamity touches you, they rejoice at it. So this is the first group of the hypocrites. They weren't. They... This is a very good description of them. This is how they were. So they weren't just hypocritical believers in the sense that they couldn't be bothered to believe, they weren't convinced. So when they met the Muslims, they said, yes, we pray, we fast, just like you. And when they go away, they don't bother, they keep themselves to themselves. No, this was a first group. Those who were implacable, bitter enemies. Then there was another group. The second group was... Slightly less passionate than the first, in the sense that they 
believed and declared their belief merely to gain something, wealth, protection of the Muslims, continue with their good life. Not, they wanted it easy. They wanted it easy. So they didn't want to have to answer questions to anyone, to answer to anyone. If everyone else believes, go with the flow, believe with them, even though at heart they weren't believers. But they more or less kept themselves to themselves. When it suited them, they would come with the Prophet ﷺ. When it suited them, they would abandon the Muslims. And Allah condemns them too, but they weren't like the first group, who were extreme. Then even below the second group, there were those who, for some reason, actually embraced Islam. So they did embrace Islam, half-heartedly, unlike the first two groups. They were disbelievers. These, they were, it's like, let me try this out. So they did embrace half-heartedly. And they always remained in between, neither believing nor disbelieving. At times they would see the light, at times they wouldn't, at times they would find themselves in darkness. In fact, some of the verses of the Qur'an refer to that as well. Then there were others at the lower end who were still hypocrites of faith in the sense that they didn't believe. But their condition was actually quite concerning, concerning for us in that, subhanAllah, they weren't enemies of Rasulullah sallallahu they weren't enemies of the Muslims. Well, for various reasons, they actually embraced Islam, wanting to believe. But because of the weakness of their faith, the weakness of their deeds, because of their connections, because of their relationships with various different people, because of the company they kept, because of their lack of loyalty, their lack of commitment, Despite initially wanting to believe sincerely, what they ended up doing is being confused, suffering doubt, and they would move forward, move back, move forward one step, move back two steps. And they lived in this state of confusion, even though they weren't enemies of Rasulullah or the Muslims. But they actually suffered a personal crisis of lack of faith, lack of belief as a result. But they continued openly as Muslims. Allah even condemns them in the Qur'an. So these are some of the groups. Now, these groups that I've mentioned, they are of those hypocrites who were guilty of hypocrisy in belief, hypocrisy in faith, hypocrisy of iman, in that they apparently embraced Islam, proclaimed Islam, but at heart they were disbelievers. Or at heart they became disbelievers because of serious doubts, even though they originally embraced Islam, but they weren't honest enough to declare their disbelief. They wanted to continue with their belief, apparently, but at heart they became disbelievers after initially embracing Islam, actually sincerely to some degree. So all of these were guilty of hypocrisy of faith. Now th this is what the Quran touches on. However, we are also, we should also be concerned about the second category of hypocrisy, which is hypocrisy not of faith, 
but rather hypocrisy of deeds. In that a person is a Muslim, believes themselves to be Muslim, but their interior does not match their exterior. Their deeds do not match their claims. They claim to be Muslim and Mu'min. In word, in testimony. But their actions, their behaviour, all belie their claim. Now we can't point out to anyone else that he is a munafiq, he is a munafiq. Even the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did not do that. Even Hudhaifat ibn al-Yaman radiallahu anhu, who was a keeper of the secrets of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, did not do that. Even though he had some of the names. He never pointed out to anyone. He would never disclose the names. So when the Sahaba radiallahu anhum didn't do it, and they feared calling anyone a munafiq, in fact, they never had the time to worry about other people's nifaq, they worried about themselves. We should follow in their footsteps and we should also be concerned about ourselves. That do, do our interiors match our exterior? Do our words and our deeds match our claims? The Sahaba radiallahu anhum feared that. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam feared its us. And there are many hadith in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentions the characteristics of the hypocrites. Some of the characteristics are they eat with, in gluttony. They consume food in gluttony. They eat a lot. They are devoted to food. They pray little. They are like logs at night. They don't wake up for salah. They are like logs. They sleep. They eat. They sleep. They come to the masjid infrequently, only occasionally, in one narration, after long periods of absence, and reluctantly. In fact, Allah mentions that in the Qur'an. وَإِذَا قَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ قَامُوا كُسَالًا يُرَاؤُونَ النَّاسِ وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا When they rise to prayer, they rise languidly, indolently, lazily, merely showing the people and they do not remember Allah except very little. So, and that's a warning. Allah doesn't say they don't pray. Allah doesn't even say they never remember Allah. Allah actually says they do remember Allah, but little. Allah says they do pray, but they rise languidly in a half-hearted manner. So this is what one of the hadith also says. At night they are like logs. They eat. Allah, in one hadith, it's even said, That their greeting is a curse, subhanAllah. Their greeting is a curse. What does that mean? They are foul of tongue. When they meet one another, their greetings, their exchange of pleasantries is not dignified. They are coarse of tongue, uncouth of behavior, unrefined in their mannerisms. And when they greet one another, they are foul-mouthed. They curse each other, subhanAllah. We should ask ourselves, to what degree are our greetings and our exchanges dignified and refined? 
a man came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and said to him, Good morning. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us a much better greeting and replaced this with that. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So one of the descriptions of the hypocrites is that their greetings are a curse. They eat excessively. They sleep excessively. They do not come to the masjid except infrequently. And very lazily and reluctantly. And there are other descriptions as well. And some of the most famous, powerful descriptions are in the authentic hadith, which I will relate soon. So we should fear nifaq in all its forms. And especially the lower end of nifaq, which may not be nifaq of faith, nifaq of iman, hypocrisy of faith, in that we say we are Muslim, but at heart we disbelieve. But just as the Sahaba عنهم, feared hypocrisy of deeds, that their interior did not match their exterior, or that their deeds did not match their words and their claims, that their characteristics and their traits could be of those whom Allah and His Rasul وسلم, considered munafiqoon and hypocrites rather than believers and mu'minun. We should follow in their footsteps and be conscious of this. Having said all of that, let me begin the uh, surah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Ida ja'aka al munafiqoon qalu nashhadu innaka la Rasulullah. When the hypocrites come to you, Allah is addressing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. When the hypocrites come to you, they say, Nashhadu innaka la Rasulullah. We testify that sure, indeed, surely you are the Messenger of Allah. This is how bold their claims were. Emphasis. Not just that we believe in you. See the words. Not just that we believe in you. Or that we embrace your faith. Or that we follow you. Or that we accept you. Or that we acknowledge you. No. Allah says, This is why the Quran is so eloquent. And Allah is not... Allah is quoting them, though not necessarily verbatim, but Allah is describing what they say in word and in deed. إِذَا جَاءَكَ الْمُنَافِقُونَ When the hypocrites come to you, قَالُوا they say, نَشْهَدْ We testify, the first point of emphasis. We don't just say, we give testimony. We provide testimony. We testify. What? إِنَّكَ That indeed, surely, verily you are, le, most assuredly, all these words of emphasis, we testify that indeed you most assuredly are Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah. Then Allah says towards the end of the verse, Wallahu yashhad lakadhibun. And Allah testifies, they testify that you are the Messenger of Allah. And Allah testifies, وَاللَّهُ يَشْهَدْ إِنَّهُمْ 
Allah yashhad and Allah testifies innal munafiqin that surely the hypocrites lakadhibun are most assuredly liars Allah matches their emphasis word for word when the hypocrites come to you they say nashhad we testify so Allah says wallahu yashhad Allah testifies they say innaka Indeed you. And Allah says, إِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ Indeed the hypocrites. They say, la most assuredly. Allah says, la most assuredly. They say, Rasulullah, that you are the messenger of Allah. Allah says, كَاذِبُونَ They are liars. Word for word. But this is towards the end of the surah. Now there's a danger that it could mean... That the hypocrites said, when they come, they say, we testify that most assuredly you are the messenger of Allah. And Allah says at the end of the verse, and Allah testifies that they are liars. Allah forbid. This could give a hostile reader the impression that Allah is saying that they are liars in their claim that he is a messenger of Allah. So i.e. they, that Allah himself is rejecting the claim that Muhammad ibn Abdullah is the messenger of Allah. There's that possibility. Allah, they say that you are the messenger of Allah and Allah, say that Allah says they are liars. So what are they liars about? That you are the messenger of Allah? When in fact you aren't? And that's why they are lying? No. So that comes at the end of the surah. Allah beautifully, before he mentions this part, Allah says in between, إِذَا جَاءَكَ الْمُنَافِقُونَ قَالُوا نَشْهَدُ إِنَّكَ لَرَسُولُ اللَّهِ When the hypocrites come to you, they say, we testify that indeed you are most assuredly the messenger of Allah. وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ إِنَّكَ لَرَسُولُهُ And Allah knows that indeed you are most assuredly his messenger. وَاللَّهُ يَشْهَدُ إِنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ لَكَاذِبُونَ And Allah testifies that indeed the hypocrites are most assuredly the liars. So there is that bit in between. Now what this verse tells us, and the lesson for us is, it's easy to make a claim. It's so easy. It's simple for a person to say, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Mu'min. I believe. I love the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Munafiqun would say the same. In fact, they probably said it more eloquently than we could ever do so. And Allah testifies to that. That words of emphasis, repeated emphasis. In fact, do you know how easy it was and it remains for hypocrites to proclaim their faith? Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who is widely regarded as being the leader of the Munafiqun, when the Prophet came to Al Madinat al Munawwara, for over two years, for almost three years, until the Battle of Uhud, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul had a certain practice which 
is very, is, it's, not, it's not well known at all. But he had a certain practice. Do you know what that practice was? For almost three years. Because he was the uncrowned king of Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, prior to the arrival of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was a very prepossessing, attractive, handsome, appealing, charming, eloquent politician. He was a born leader. He had all the qualities of leadership. He had the charm, the appearance, the prepossessiveness, the handsomeness, the appeal, the intelligence, the uncanny ability to surround himself by sycophants and followers. He had all of these qualities in him. And Allah describes him later in, in Surah Al-Munafiqun. He had flaming red cheeks. He was very handsome. He was tall, well-built. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul, being a leader and the uncrowned king of Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, he commanded great influence. He exerted immeasurable influence. What happened is that after the Prophet ﷺ came, even though he seethed from within, and he hated the Prophet ﷺ, he bore, he harbored resentment towards him. He felt robbed by him. Despite all of these inner feelings, his practice was for almost three years that every Jumu'ah he would stand up in the masjid before the khutbah, before the Jumu'ah khutbah. And he would say to the whole congregation, and people would listen. People would listen because he was well respected. He would say, O oh people. Remember, he was from the Khazraj tribe. He said, O oh people, this is the messenger of Allah. He is the messenger of Allah. Believe in him, follow him, and obey him. And then he would sit down. He did this for almost three years. Every Jumu'ah Salah, before the Prophet Sallallahu khutbah, he would stand up and tell the whole audience, O oh people, O oh assembly, this is the messenger of Allah. Believe in him, follow him, accept him. Subhanallah. So it's so easy to be hypocritical. It's so easy to lie publicly. It's so easy to claim belief in Allah and His Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Even love. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul did it beautifully for three years. All the way up to Uhud. Then what happened in Uhud? We don't have time to go into the details, but in the battle of Uhud, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam a year after the Battle of Badr, which was in Ramadan, the second year of Hijrah, a year later, <clears throat> the Quraysh, to avenge their dead, traveled to Medina. When the Muslims learned of their arrival, the Prophet ﷺ held a council of war. What should we do? Should we defend the city from within, remaining in our strongholds? Because remember, it wasn't a walled city but in the strongholds and the fortresses of each of the settlements? Or should we go out and meet them in an open warfare? So some advised the Prophet ﷺ and they offered their opinion that we should remain in the strongholds and the fortresses. 
and others advocated going out to meet them in open warfare. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was one of those who advocated remaining within the settlements and not going out to challenge and face the enemy. Eventually, the Prophet ﷺ, having heard all opinions, came to the decision, which he then said is irreversible, once he has decreed that they should go out and meet them in open warfare. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul resented even this, that Rasulullah ﷺ didn't accept his opinion. So the next morning, when everyone traveled from their parts of the city, they're set from their settlements towards Uhud, Mount Uhud. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul traveled with his contingent. And since he was a leader, he shortly, just before the battleground, at some distance from the battleground, he convened his followers and others and he spoke to them. And being eloquent, persuasive, he convinced them not to take part in this folly of meeting the enemy in open warfare. As a result of his persuasion and his ter- backsliding and his turning back, 300 of the army defected. They didn't defect to the enemy, but they turned back and went back to their homes and settlements. As a result, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul single-handedly reduced the whole army of Rasulullah by one-third. They were approximately 1,000. They were meeting 3,000 Quraysh. Now, from they were already at a disadvantage of being one-third of the opposing force, now they were at the disadvantage of being one-quarter of the opposing force. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul single-handedly did this. So after this, he again stood up in the Jumu'ah khutbah and said, O people, this is the messenger of Allah. Believe in him, embrace him, follow him. So some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum grabbed him and said, How dare you? even after what you did. So, it's very easy. So this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of the munafiqoon, <clears throat> when the hypocrites came to you, they say, when, when they come to you, they say, surely we testify that you are indeed the messenger of Allah. And Allah knows that you are his messenger, but Allah testifies that they are lies and their claims. False testimony and lying are some of the greatest characteristics and traits of hypocrisy. And Rasulullah has warned us about these two. False testimony and lying. Things are very common. We should be fearful. I'll end with one verse. Because uh, we don't have a time, and well, I'll conclude the next verse. But these traits of hypocrisy are very serious. Do you know why? We may not be hypocrites, but our hypocritical behaviour may eventually lead us to hypocrisy. And there's a beautiful verse of the Quran which explains that. 
ومنهم من عاهد الله لئن آتانا من فضله لنصدقن ولنكونن من الصالحين فلما آتاهم من فضله بخلوا به وتولوا وهم معرضون فأعقبهم نفاقا في قلوبهم إلى يوم يلقونه بما أخلفوا الله ما وعدوه وبما كانوا يكذبون الله أكبر Here Allah is describing those same hypocrites that I said, I spoke about earlier, not the extreme ones, but those who believe sincerely and in a way were sincere, but they lacked loyalty, they lacked commitment, they lacked fealty, and they dithered and they wavered and they were weak. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of them, and they are those who من عاهد الله who pledged to Allah لَإِنْ آتَانَا مِنْ فَضْلِهِ That if Allah gives us of his bounty, i.e. he gives us wealth of his grace and bounty, then what will we do? لَنَصَدَّقَنَّ وَلَنَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ We will most assuredly give charity and we will most assuredly be of the pious. And before I continue, what do the final verses of Surah Al-Munafiqoon say? The final verse. وَأَنْفِقُوا مِمَّا رَزَقْنَاكُمْ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ أَحَدَكُمُ الْمَوْتِ And give and spend in the way of Allah before death comes upon one of you. Then when death does come upon one of you, فَيَقُولَ رَبِّ لَوْ لَا أَخَّرْتَنِي إِلَىٰ أَجَلٍ قَرِيبٍ One of you then says, Oh Allah, give me respite, give me some delay, give me some time. Why? Why? فَأَصَّدَّقَ وَأَكُمْ مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ So that I may give in charity and I may be of the pious. And what does that verse say? And there are those who pledge to Allah that if Allah gives us of his bounty and grace, we will surely give in charity and we will be of the pious. See how the verses match? So when Allah did give them of his grace and bounty, they were miserly and stingy thereof with it. So they broke their pledge to Allah. When Allah did give them wealth of his bounty and grace, rather than giving in charity, they held on to it. They hoarded it. They were miserly with it. And instead of becoming of the pious, we will surely be of the pious. What did they do? They turned away whilst being heedless. They turned back whilst turning away. So what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do as a result? Listen to the words. فَعَقَبَهُمْ نِفَاقًا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ So Allah created, or Allah placed hypocrisy in their hearts as a result. إِلَى يَوْمِ يَلْقَوْنَ Till the day that shall meet him. Why? Because of their contravening and breaking the pledge and promise they made to him, and because of their lying. What that verse says is that initially they were sincere, or they appeared to be sincere. 
that if Allah gives us of his wealth, we pledge that we will give in charity and we will be good. When the test of wealth came, they failed. And they broke their pledge to Allah. And they turned away instead of becoming pious. So these were the traits of hypocrisy in terms of deeds. They weren't hypocrites at heart. Apparently, we don't know. But because of their lying and their breaking their pledge and promise, that actually led to their hypocrisy in belief and in heart as punishment. So lies, we may think lies are harmless. Breaking promises and pledges are harmless. But if this behavior persists, there is a great danger. That this may actually lead, initially these are just, this is just hypocrisy indeed, but this may actually lead to hypocrisy in faith, in heart. I'll end with the next, well, uh, I'll end here because we don't have time. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us, may Allah enable us to understand the dangers of nifaq in all its forms. Not just nifaq and hypocrisy of faith and iman, but also hypocrisy of deeds. And one of the hypocrisy, one of the characteristics of hypocrisy is riya, showmanship, ostentation, display. And in one hadith again related by Muhammad ibn Hanbalin's Muslim, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Indeed, the greatest fear that I have for you is the lesser shirk, the minor shirk, the minor idolatry, the minor paganism. So the Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, what's a shirk al-asghar? What's the minor paganism? What's this minor shirk, this minor idolatry? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Showmanship, display, ostentation, doing things insincerely merely to show others, merely to display to others. Now, this doesn't mean that a person displays himself to be a Muslim, whereas at heart he is, a, he is not a Muslim. But no, this refers even to the small things. This is a shirkul asghar, where a person prays salah to impress others, or lengthens their salah to impress others. A person appears to be more devout, merely to create a display and a show. This acting, this adopting a persona, this dressing, this appearing, these masks, all of this is part of a riyah. And Rasulullah has termed it a shirkul asghar, the minor idolatry, the lesser paganism, the lesser shirk. So we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from all forms of nifaq, hypocrisy. May Allah enable us to follow in the footsteps of the noble Sahaba radiallahu anhum and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And may Allah protect us from the traits and the characteristics of the munafiqun. وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك